That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. We're living in an era of analytics. And you know it because even when you tune into a college football game, pro football game, the Super Bowl, a week from Sunday, Major League Baseball game, swimming, pickleball, tennis, people will bring up analytics. How much of it, uh, how much of sports is bogged down by analytics? Meaning when we hear about the fourth down percentages of the Detroit Lions and that becomes the topic of conversation... Hey, I, I made a decision based on analytics. How much of sports should be feel? How much should be analytics? I don't think you can go one way or the other. I think it has to be a blend. We've got a couple of guests today I'm going to talk about that with, among other things. I'm really excited about the guests on the show. Like, my agent tells me he thinks the best part of the show is when I'm interviewing guests. Which I don't know how I should feel about that. Like, shouldn't the best part of the show be the monologues from my agent? You know, guy I'm paying? Come on. Nobody says I love hearing you interview. I've got two really good ones today. Joe Madden will be with us. Won a World Series with the Cubs. Broke a 108-year drought as the manager of the Cubbies. He worked in the minor leagues. He was a scout. He's written a book. He is uh, a guy who uh, was at the forefront of the analytics movement, and yet uh, he didn't always use analytics. Well, we know Joe Madden was in the dugout wearing his hoodie and managing a little bit on feel and a little bit on analytics, and uh, we'll talk to Joe Madden about that coming up here in about 10 minutes. I want you here for that conversation. I'm also going to ask him about Major League Baseball to Portland. I'm going to ask him through the eyes of baseball, does he view the Pacific Northwest as a region that needs another team? with The rivalry with the Mariners, could that become a thing? Joe Madden spent a lifetime in baseball, first as a uh, young uh, player right out of Lafayette College and uh, going to the minor leagues and not really getting more than about 500 plate appearances in the minors. Then he ends up in coaching and in managing in the minor leagues. Certainly he was with the the Angels, when the Angels in 2002 were facing my Giants in the World Series. Remember, Barry Bonds was on that terror. He was lighting it up. Uh, Mike Sosha was the manager, but, uh, but uh, you know, uh, Joe Madden was uh, right there alongside Sosha as a coach on the field in the dugout with the Angels. Later, he goes on to manage the Rays, then the Cubs, wins the World Series with the Cubs, certainly uh, ends up back with the Angels, and... He managed uh, guys like uh, Jim Edmonds and uh, Mike Trout and Shohei Otani, and uh, I got to ask Joe Madden about it all. And but I want to. My question, my selfish question, 
I want to know what Joe Madden was thinking in 2002 in the World Series when Barry Bonds was hitting home runs like other guys were hitting foul balls. Like, it was almost automatic with Barry Bonds, game to game. I covered that streak as Bonds was on a terror. Yes, we know now it was the cream and the clear along with a whole bunch of talent. But uh, I'm going to ask Joe Madden what the run-up to that World Series was like. What were the Angels thinking, you know, as they approached that World Series? And uh, also, you know, you look at, you know, baseball in his time underwent so many changes, not just with some expansion, but in how players were evaluated, how they were uh, developed. Um, the minor league system has under, undergone an overhaul. Uh, you, you had the uh, sort of the introduction of analytics. It sort of flooded the marketplace, and you had Moneyball with the A's, and you had Theo Epstein trying to win in Boston and Chicago, and it really kind of changed how teams were constructed. And Joe Madden, he, hell, he was in the dugout as the manager of the Rays when the Rays went all in on analytics. We'll talk to him coming up about sort of managing that because aren't we think aren't we in an era like that in college football or the nfl like i asked judah earlier today i said you know what should i ask joe madden about and judah said you know he kind of was talking about like look at bill belichick look at nick saban look at chip kelly maybe going from college to back to professional you know trying to get away from nil david shaw saying i want no part of this like the game is changing and baseball underwent some changes as well. And how do you as a manager or a coach manage a room, a locker room, a lineup, a dugout? Uh, how do you manage that as, you know, it's a moving target because it's changing. The thing you're managing, the game that you're playing is changing. Bill Belichick in the NFL, NFL is a different game right now than it was 20 years ago. And and for college football, it's a different game. And I think we're seeing some coaches raise their hand. The Boston College coach saying, hey, you know what? I, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I, I think it's less of a hassle to be in the NFL. Chip Kelly may be headed there himself. Uh, I'll ask Joe Madden all of that stuff coming up. And then at 4 o'clock, same thing. We have a terrific guest at 4 o'clock today, Alex Molden, former NFL defensive back, played a long time in the NFL at a high level, former Oregon Duck, First-round draft pick. Um, I want to pick his brain kind of about this Super Bowl that's going to happen a week from Sunday. You have Brock Purdy in the 49ers, Debo Samuel, George Kittle, Christian McCaffrey on that offense. I really want Alex Molden to kind of evaluate from a defensive perspective how different or similar or challenging the 49ers are versus maybe the Kansas City Chiefs who have Travis Kelsey who are going to try to run the ball a little bit with Pacheco and then, of course, Patrick Mahomes as the maestro uh, under center. And I want to get Alex Molden to kind of talk a little bit about that and then big game preparation because this is a two-week endeavor that the 49ers and the Chiefs are going to immerse themselves in and they're in the middle of it now. And these teams are going to be staying 25 miles off the strip. They're not going to be anywhere near the strip. Both of the teams are NFL's keeping it, the players away from the strip. They don't want any of the trouble. They're just saying, you know, this is going to be about football. Let the tourists come and stay. Let the media stay uh, on the strip. But let's not have our, uh, our players immersed in another potential Barrett-Robbins situation. I remember I was covering that Super Bowl 
when Barrett Robbins went AWOL for the Raiders in the Raiders Buccaneers Super Bowl down in San Diego, and you know he went across the border and. Uh, Barrett Robbins, uh, you know, didn't play in the football game. And so I think the NFL is doing a good job of trying to insulate the teams and the players. But I want to talk with Alex Molden about big game preparation. How much of a distraction can this be? Will this be? And how, as a player, do you uh, commit to making yourself focused and what amounts to a circus-like atmosphere? And, of course, two teams that, you know, the Chiefs were just there and they played in a bunch of big games. Maybe they're better equipped to handle it than the 49ers, but certainly I think there's a question there. Uh, we'll also visit in hour number three with Spencer McLaughlin. We're going to talk about the the departing four Pac-12 teams that are headed off to the Big Ten. Big announcement today coming out of the SEC and the Big Ten Conference. And I uh, messaged a little bit with Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner today. He's going to come on the show next week. But they have uh, formed sort of an advisory panel or an advisory group, the Big Ten and the SEC, that will study some of the issues that are facing the Big Ten Conference and the SEC. And I fully expect that this is a uh, firm pivot in the direction of the SEC and the Big Ten potentially leading the way for football to split from the NCAA and do its own thing. And it would make a lot of sense that the Big Ten Conference and the SEC – both are kind of going, hey, we're like the NFC and the AFC right now. These other conferences, certainly the Pac-12 uh, not being the Pac-12 anymore, the ACC having its own tr- legal troubles, and the Big 12 uh, being you know, probably the fourth best conference among the Power Four. It, it, I think certainly uh, you know, Greg Sankey's going to be somebody to talk with. He didn't want to come on today's show, said he needs to keep his head down, certainly with the, an- the announcement today that uh, the Big Ten and the SEC are forming this advisory group. But keep an eye on it because I do think it was it caught my eye. The SEC put it out on their website, and uh, I went, oh, here we go. This isn't like a – this isn't a sprint towards, you know, s- slipping away from the uh, – and separating from the NCAA, but it, it, I believe it's a pivot in that direction. So, you know, look, everybody else, all the other shows – in the market, all the others who are following Major League Baseball to Portland are are bantering about you know whether it baseball can happen or whether or not this is a head fake by the Portland Diamond Project or you know how, how many times that that people have gotten their hopes up or will it work won't it work they, everybody else is sitting around talking about it we're going to Joe Madden who has won a World Series as a manager and won two World Series. Uh, in the dugout, both as a coach and a manager, and a guy who understands the landscape. We're going to talk to him about it. And then everyone else is going to talk about Patrick Mahomes and Brock Purdy. But we're going to visit with a guy who's actually been on the field with high-level quarterbacks and played for a long time in the NFL, Alex Molden. So I want you here for all of that. Judah Newby, you're in the seat today. Steven's off. Um, give me an idea from your perspective, having Joe Madden on the show, how exciting is that for you? It's uh, it's awesome, man. I mean, I'm a massive baseball fan. It's in my blood. If you're a baseball fan, fan it, it just is in your blood. And uh, when a guy like Joe Madden is able to come on the show, you just want to pick his brain about so many things. So I'm really excited to uh, to listen to the conversation. 
you know, I spent time out in Chicago as an undergrad and a, and a radio intern out there. Uh, it was the home of the White Sox at the time. It's now the home of the Cubs out there at 670 the score, but got to meet and interact with a bunch of White Sox and Cubs players. I, I spent so much time at Wrigley as an undergrad growing up. So uh, to get Joe Madden on the show, it's massive uh, just as a baseball fan. So really looking forward to what he has to say. Exciting. I want to ask him the best player that he's ever coached like who's the best player that's been in the clubhouse in his time and and I think you know guys that immediately come to mind I mean obviously there are uh, you know several talented players but you know Shohei Otani at the end of his career when he was managing the, the Angels Mike Trout would be in that conversation maybe Jim Edmonds earlier um, you know you got guys like Chris Bryant in uh, and others you know I your Cubs any of your Cubs candidate for best player ever that mm. he's ever been around that you'd put in that conversation? Yeah, man. I think uh, I think Bryant is up there for sure. I, I just think about that 2016 team a lot and that World Series going to the seven games with the uh, with with Cleveland. That game seven was absolutely wild and like unforgettable. And for the Cubs to actually pull it off and win it is an all time sports memory. Um, that's that's just wild to think about. But yeah, I, there's a, there's a lot to choose from. I mean, Ryan Sandberg's up there for me in terms mm. of all time yes. great Cubs. Uh, I always think of, you know, even though their careers didn't pan out the way we thought they might, Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor when they were both dishing as aces and and uh, the twenty strikeout game for Kerry Wood, you know, is, is pretty unforgettable. I, you know, I think a Sosa, but you know his his legacy's <laughs> taken a little bit of a, a different turn. You know, post uh, post ninety eight, but still with that ninety eight cent season represented is unforgettable and and saved baseball in a lot of ways at the time. But uh, I, still, deep down, the ironic part is I'm a Cardinal fan. You know, my loyalties right, with the right. St. Louis Cardinals. That's so right. Even though I've been to Wrigley a bunch and uh, I really appreciate everything the Cubs stand for, I'm a Cardinal guy primarily. All right. So wait a minute. You're going to college in Chicago, right? Like yeah. that. That was what. So did you get to sneak to Wrigley Field and, and just like on a sunny day, you'd be like, hey, let's go to the game? Yeah, sometimes I would make sure I had either morning classes so I could get away for a, for day baseball or uh, I would pattern it, you know, I'd get to see games on the weekends. Whenever the Cardinals were in town, first of all, but even if the Giants were in town or anything, uh, you know, I know we had Darwin Barney on the show, uh, you know, not too long ago as well. I remember seeing Darwin play a lot during his Cubs career at Wrigley because that was the time that I was going to school over there too. So, yeah, it was just a 35-minute train ride from the, the suburbs where I was going to uh, to uh, downtown, and then you'd jump on the L and get up there to uh, to Wrigleyville. It was a great time. Love it. I'm going to ask Joe Madden all about all of that stuff, plus Major League Baseball to Portland. Is it a pipe dream? Can we get an outside-in view from a guy who has been around the game for four decades? Joe Madden's coming up. Alex Molden will join us, top of the hour, 4 o'clock, former NFL defensive back. We've got a great show for you. Leave it locked in here. You know him as a World Series champion manager, and I know a, a lot of people in baseball respect our next guest. He's written a book. He's got a lot to share with us about life and baseball and sports. Joe Madden, former manager with the Cubs and um, Rays and uh, author of the book, The Book of Joe, uh, is joining us. Where are you today? Where's home right now? John, I'm, uh, home is actually Pennsylvania, up in northeastern Pennsylvania. That's where I'm from, and I still... That's my main pad. I go back there for most of the season now. Uh, but right now I'm in Tampa. Tampa's always been uh, 
my like near and dear to my heart also, kind of my second home. And I'm down here to play some golf. So I came out here because the weather's so bad up north. <laughs> I'm hanging here until May, and then I'll go back up to Sugarloaf. I love that. And, and you spent so long <laughs> in baseball, you probably just got used to a rhythm of kind of getting mm-hmm. down to spring training, getting involved in baseball and the in the rhythm. That never leaves you, does it? It, it doesn't, but it does. I mean, honestly, I haven't done it for a couple of years now, and I'm pretty good at adapting, I think. Um, of course, it was, I did it every year since, what, 19, shoot, 76 pretty much, 75, 76, and then I didn't last year for the first time. But I'm pretty good at laying things down and moving on. I, I found that out about myself. You don't even know that until you're faced with those uh, moments. So I am. I'm here. I'm in the middle of spring training, but I'm not like the urge. I don't feel an urge to go out to a spring training site. I'll probably run into some guys at our restaurant. Like Riz might show up. Uh, even Brian Cashman might show up, those guys. But for the most part, um, I'm just really trying to drive the ball 230-plus down the middle of the fairway. That's my main objective right now. <laughs> We're all trying to do that. Uh, right, Joe Madden right. is with us. Um, look, uh, your background as a player was as a catcher. I grew up in a baseball mm-hmm. family. My dad was in AAA with the Mets in 1969 when they won the World Series. And he, you know, he had always talked about catchers being able to see the game differently. You know pitching, you know hitting. How much of an advantage does that give you when you look mm-hmm. back on your playing career? How much did you draw on that as a manager? Well, it really does mean a lot. You don't think of it, think of it at the time, but is, uh, is the catcher in baseball the middle linebacker in football? Because you're on defense. It's one game that uh, you're on defense in, in that particular situation, and uh, and you have the ball. It's kind of awkward. But you look out at the whole field, you have, and you're controlling the pitcher also, which is really pretty much the game could have been called pitching as opposed to baseball, I think. So when you get to know and understand how to work with pitchers and what that all means, you have a great advantage just from that alone. But beyond that, you know, positioning, watching first movements, watching how defenses are set up, controlling the running game, um, you know, butt defenses, everything. I mean, you're, you are the middle linebacker uh, because you want to play defense with the ball. So um, there's, a lot, there's a lot to be learned if you're paying attention. Like some guys just do it. I mean, I wasn't smart enough just to do it. I mean, my game was football with it naturally, but baseball I had to work out a little bit more. So I, I was grateful. I, and I converted to catcher, what was that, Lafayette in, um, what, 71, 72, 72, 73. I, I converted, and that's why I became a catcher before that. I was a pitcher and a shortstop. What did you get out of the minor league experience 15 years there? Everything. Um, and beyond, even before that was the scouting experience. I um, I was talking to Mike and uh, Craig a couple of minutes ago, and Larry, of course, but um, scouting is really where it begins. And I've encouraged more of the guys that became uh, first-time major league managers before they accepted the gig. I said, why don't you go and ask an organization to go scout for maybe a year or two and to, and to manage rookie ball? Because that's where you really learn. You, you have you tested on every level uh, when you're in those situations, and nobody does that anymore. Uh, a big part of a major league job, I think, is evaluation, evaluation of young talent. What is it? What does young talent look like before it becomes talent? You know, uh, uh, what is what is um, Tim Salmon look like before he became Tim Salmon, as an example for me, or Wally Joyner, because I signed Wallace Keith. What did they look like before they became household names? And a lot of these guys don't have, not a lot of, none of them have that benefit. And I still believe, if I'm going to hire a manager on a major league level, I would really ask this fella in advance and try to, you know. Uh, be pressing about it, send them out and scout a little bit, and go ahead and work a minor league situation because you are tested on every level. So, yes, um, I scouted uh, Arizona, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, 
uh, Nebraska and Kansas for several years. And then I branched off when I went to spring training. I just scouted before I went to camp. And then managing started in Idaho Falls two years in Salem right down the road from you guys, and then eventually Midland, Texas. And then I roved everywhere. I mean, nobody, nobody believes in liberal arts anymore, man, and I don't understand that. Everybody wants to specialize, or they want to go right to the top, right from Jump Street. And I think we're missing a lot. You miss a lot of texture. You miss a lot of nuance. When you do things like that, you just can't know your craft nearly as well by taking that route. How gratifying is it when you were working as a scout to, to identify a player and then see that player have success? Oh, it's, it's really, it's Laura. I mean, scouts work so hard. People have no idea what a scout does. I don't even know what they're doing these days. I don't know how they, they uh, do their, their local areas, and I don't know what the travel looks like. But I know what it looked like back then. It was in the vehicle all the time. You're covering your area. You're going to a game every day, probably two if you can, maybe sometimes three. And when you actually hit on somebody, um, it's like your son practically uh, getting uh, to professional ball or uh, hopefully to the major leagues. So whenever you sign somebody, your intent is that they become major league players. And when they do, it's 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 really gratifying. Wally Wally Joyner was my first. I call him Wallace Keith because that's his actual name. So he and I still stay in touch. Timmy Sam is another guy. I mean, um, um, Kelly uh, Tim Kelly signed um, Timothy, and there's others that made it to the Jackie Howell as part of the Jack Howell signing. So when they get there, man, it's it's special. And I still stay in touch with Wally Timmy. Jackie, uh, Kirk McCaskill, I could keep going on, all these dudes, it matters. And, and that's what a scout kind of lives for. I mean, they live a lonely life, and it's, a very, it's not gratifying in a sense because nobody knows who you are, what you've done, how many miles you put in, how many conversations you've had. And I'm here to tell you it's been a lot. I have probably the mo- most respect out of all, in all of baseball community for scouts uh, more than anybody else. Joe Madden, our guest, two-time World Series champion, three-time Major League Baseball Manager of the Year. 2002, I covered that series. I happened to be in the Bay Area, and I was covering the Giants, and you uh, end up with the Angels against the Giants, and you know that was in the height of Barry Bonds' run. But you guys came away with that World Series championship, and what was that like to have Bonds on the other side of that series and, and have you know the strategy and the psychology going into that series? Well, you know, we're at that time the Americans and the National Leagues pretty much we didn't see each other that often. I think we just started interleague play right before that. But I was going to that series. He said, hey, he hasn't seen us yet. He hasn't seen our pitchers yet until that first game. And then he just turned some stuff around big. And that's it. We're not pitching to him anymore. <laughs> so and he was, he was that, I mean, honestly, he was that impactful. Every time he took a swing. Every time the bat left his shoulders, it looked like he could hit a home run. It was that incredibly devastating and consistent. And I, I, I scouted him when he was at Arizona State. I saw him when he was a skinny left fielder playing for Jim Brock, a uh, below average arm, decent outfielder, but he still, he still pop a baseball even as a skinny kid shoe. So I saw him all the way up and through. When he was with the Giants at that time, wow. And they had a really good team. They had a veteran-laden team. They were good. But he... Uh, you know, in that brief period of time, and I know there's different issues with them, et cetera, but for that brief period of time, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody that looked like they could and would hit a home run every time they swung the bat. Yeah, it was almost surprising when he didn't hit a home run during that run in that season. He was just so on it. And, you know, uh, and you're right about the issues. Like, he took his shirt off in the clubhouse one day, and I, was, I happened to be covering the Niners the season before. He looked like the middle linebacker for the 49ers. I mean, that was the body he had. Wasn't that skinny kid at ASU anymore. I think we were all kind of looking around going, something's not right here. 
Um, Joe Madden is with us. Um, you know, where do you stand on analytics versus feel of the game? Because you were at it so long, I'm sure you had a feel at different times on what to do situationally. Yeah, I think I think uh, you have to balance them is what I think. I'm Listen, I was on the forefront of the analytical movement when I was with the Rays in 2006, 7, 8. Andrew and I, um, Eric Neander was part of that group, Hein Bloom, um, all a part of that particular group that we kind of got over the top on the AL East. And a big part of the analytics there uh, for us where it was very helpful was on defense. It was it's a very good tool defensively, and it's a very good tool when it comes to acquisitions. And nobody talks about that. I mean, everybody thinks it's like it's just like such a big part of every game, every day, every moment. It's not true. It's really good on defense, though. You, if you're, you'd be crazy not to utilize analytics regarding where to place your defense. You would really be that you'd be missing out completely. Another big part of it is where, um, when it comes to pitching uh, versus hitters, it can be very helpful re- regarding um, really pinpointing the hitter's weakness. Does he chase? Does he chase elevation? Can he hit 92, 93 plus? Uh, you don't even have to throw him a breaking ball. Just stay heater. Just stay heater. I know your mind tells you you have to do something different, but you don't. He will expand with two strikes. He always swings at a full count. These are the things you can see more readily. Now, of course, you could do that just through eyeballs and scouting really well. But the analytical side just breaks that down, throws it on a sheet of paper, saves you a lot of work going into a game, those kind of things. So that's those acquisitions, it's never talked about enough. Uh, when you're able to look under the hood in the offseason and you have to make a close call on two shortstops, as an example, that's where I think I would really want to delve into it. That's where I could sit down, go over reams of information. And, of course, you want that, but then you never want to get away from uh, make a personality uh, conversations, one-on-one coaches, what's he like, uh, teammates, you know, how was so-and-so. So it's a combination. It's an amalgam of everything. You want to balance everything. So analytics is that, and I also believe this analytics provides a safety net for decision-making. People rely on it so much to the point where if it doesn't work, it's an easy get. Um, the analytics told me to do so. It didn't work, but analytically, numerically, mathematically, I was supposed to do it that way. Eventually, it's going to come around and work. But that doesn't help me on August 19th sometimes or August 20th or in a short series against a hot team with different players playing better and certain players playing worse. So there's, it's all of that. It's a tool. It's not an end all. I like the human element. It's, it's data versus the heartbeat. Uh, you have to balance this stuff. I, experience is no longer necessary, it seems. Wisdom is no longer part of the game. Feel, if you use the word feel, people look at you like, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> you know why? Because they've never done that. They, if you've never done something, you can't develop feel. You don't deserve to. Uh, feel is the gift of experience. So these are the things that it's hard to explain for people to understand. They can understand two plus two equals four, but they can't understand the feeling that you got on that top rail and the bottom of the seven based on something you saw in El Paso in 19. Let's see, when, when Phil Venturino, I took him out of the game, was what, 19? Um, 85, I think it was. I took Phil out of the game I shouldn't have. And it comes rushing back to you. Mm-hmm. Feel, experience, moments. Yeah, to, to just to think you're just going to go off math and, and think that it's going to be the answer, it's crazy. Balance, brother. The whole life needs to be balanced. Your life needs to be balanced. My life needs to be balanced. So does my baseball team. So if you're able to understand that, you hire a smaller analytical group. You don't need this vast group of analysts upstairs uh, creating redundant work, but you need their work. You need, I would prefer a vast 
number of experienced baseball coaches and teachers on the field, eyeball to eyeball with my guys, augment it by a wonderful, the best staff you money can buy. But it doesn't have to be this thick numbers where there's a lot of redundancy coming out that's really superfluous. People try to make it out to be important, but it's not. Joe Madden is our guest. Fantastic mm-hmm. stuff, Joe. And I think, I think too, one of the things we're watching, especially in college football, we're seeing the game changing, and we're seeing a lot mm-hmm. of longtime coaches go, I don't want to do the transfer portal, name, image, likeness, all this stuff. This isn't what I got into it for. I, what, one of the things I think is most impressive about you is your World Series championships come 14 years apart. And I don't know if you, mm-hmm. you thought every year you were going to get there after you won it or if you, you thought, gosh, I may never get here again. But you, 14 years later, win another World Series, this time in Chicago. And it, can you maybe speak about kind of the, how you had to adapt and how you had to change or, or did you as a manager? Well, what happens is in Chicago, you're holding your own baby. I was holding my own baby in Tampa Bay also. When I was with the Angels, I wasn't holding my own baby. That was Sosa's baby. You know, and I'm there to advise him, which is different. When you're advising somebody on a nightly basis, I'm more, I don't want to say reticent. I'm still going to give you what I got when I'm thinking, but you got to be sure. I got to be positive. Excuse me. I can't take flyers here. This is, he's got to answer for this stuff that I'm saying to him. So that's one way. But when you're holding the baby in Tampa Bay or you're holding the baby in Chicago and you make decisions, you got to answer for the stuff that you thought about. And that's, that's fair, and I like that. And in today's game, it's not necessarily like that anymore. Um, it's, uh, the game is so controlled by front offices over uh, managers and staff that it's completely different. And that part, to me, is not attractive. Um, I, I really believe that once you've empowered, you should empower, not control. And I think leadership is being confused these days where those that are supposedly built leadership are doling out um, – moments of control as opposed to saying it's your baby go in and do it make the decision consult with me i'm always here for you and if i have a great idea i'm going to come and tell you what i'm thinking but it's your baby go that doesn't happen anymore so i love that part of it the first couple years with the uh, cubbies i pretty much was able to had a free reign kind of a thing great coaching staff wonderful group of players we had a blast and that's another thing nobody has fun anymore brother Fun is it's it's not existent. Everybody's worried because of all the scrutiny involved in social media and be, being concerned about um, things coming back at you based on maybe um, a, a decision that you make, something that, again, was based on feel or past or wisdom, whatever you want to call it. Um, everybody's worried about that, so you become very careful. And you're not going to win a championship by being careful. Fortune favors the bold, brother, and you have to be bold in your decision-making. You can't worry about uh, people coming at you necessarily. Sometimes you just got to wear it. But nevertheless, that's what a real leader is about, empowerment and not control. Now, the book you've written, the book of Joe, I think is a great transition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you wrote it with Tom Verducci, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's life. It's kind of life coaching, isn't it? I mean, you're managing. Yeah. It's baseball and life, and here are the parallels. And what made you want to write the book? Well, uh, Tommy and I talked about it even when I was with the Cubs, and I said, nah, you know, it's not time for that. And then once the... Um, uh, let me go. I said to Tommy, you know, I know I was going to have a lot of free time. Um, and plus the pandemic, part of it was the pandemic. So we started it during the pandemic and then once the angels, um, let me go, then it was obviously the right time to put it out there, but it was in the making, it was in the hopper from 2020 or so. And, um, and Tommy had po- approached me on it prior to that. And I said, you know, this is, I'm going to go. And then during the pandemic, I rode my bike every day. 
in Arizona, really warm. I had a little dictaphone wrapped around my neck, and I would probably record 45 to, 50 to 60 minutes every day. And at the end of the day, I would upload it to Tom and David Black, uh, the editor, um, and um, we would talk about it. So there was an accumulation of 100 hours of me talking um, to a dictaphone, plus when you read the book, Tommy is fabulous with his research, and Tommy is fabulous at, at um, weaving things together in stories and thoughts and with, with great research and, and backs, um, backs up, and he's so good at that. So was, I, I really have so much respect for Tom Verducci. So began during the pandemic, went through that, was the right time to do it, let's go. I was really anticipating um, the book being uh, revealed while I was still managing the angels. It didn't occur that way. But that's the way the world works sometimes. I, I love the book, and uh, it encourage people to get on Amazon, go to your local bookstore. It's called The Book of Joe. Um, Joe Madden is our guest, uh, World Series champion as a manager. And uh, i got to ask you, we've been talking mm -hmm. all week about the Portland Diamond Project. Major League Baseball is a possibility in our region. Does it work? And don't be afraid to hurt our feelings. Does it work in the Pacific Northwest right here in, in Portland? Well, if it works in Seattle, it works in Portland, right? I mean, um, the Seattle Pilots, they go way back, and it's kind of uh, it's fuzzy to think about those days with the Pilots and their wonderful uniforms. And then the Mariners, I mean, you know, I, when I was with the Angels, I was up there all the time, and I saw that franchise going. I'll tell you another thing. In the 80s, when I was running instructional leagues in Arizona for the Angels, the Mariners had among the best talent that there was. At that, They didn't win. But I'll tell you what, their scouts and their minor league developmental people did a great job. So, it, of course, it works. That ballpark up there is one of the best. Uh, I think it's T-Mobile now. Um, the fan base is rabbit. I mean, when you they show up, and it's kind of a it's kind of a cult kind of a method the way they they follow their group, a very individualist individualistic group of people, and they protect their own. So, I, I there's a part of a lot of a lot of Seattle plus the beautiful city itself, not unlike Portland. I think Portland, given the opportunity, is going to come out and kind of work the same kind of a vibe regarding uh, the part of the country. Uh, you know, there's something about the Pacific Northwest when you get up there. Just the, uh, the air quality seems to be so much better. You get outside, there's a, the, the, the brightness when, it's, when it is a sunny day. It's such a, yep. it's such a, different, it's a, it's a different kind of yellow. I don't know. I, there's so, you know you're in the Pacific Northwest. And, and again, the fan base, when I was in, I was in Salem for two summers, in the early 80s, we won a championship there in 1982 at the Salem Angels in the Northwest League. And they fans turned out, and to this day, not more recently, but in the recent past, I've heard from people back there, and I had a great time uh, there. I, yes, of course it can work there. Look at your collegiate stuff. Look what the, uh, the Ducks have done there. And, uh, and uh, again, Eugene was another fabulous place even to play in the minor leagues back then. Of course you can support a team up there. It's about building the right facility with the right kind of uh, options available that really speaks of the community and not just of the baseball community, uh, the right kind of location you got to uh, be concerned with and work properly the infrastructure and make it appealing to everybody. Just so those people that don't necessarily aren't into baseball, make this area something to do where that they can enjoy and come out to this particular area and, and suit their needs also. Make it more, uh, again, liberal arts, more encompassing. Of course it can. It's beautiful. I love Portland. And, uh, again, if, if Seattle can do it, uh, of course Portland can do it. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about Oregon State and Pat Casey, multiple national yep. championships, Carl's mm -hmm. yep. World mm -hmm. Series, and Joe Madden, our guest. As a manager, how can you treat everybody the same, or do you have to identify how to reach each child just like a parent does? 
and and try to you know manage individually. How did how did you handle that? Well, you have to have an overarching uh, whatever your your uh, policies are, what your philosophy is. I would have my um, I, I would g- gather my lead bulls. My lead bulls would be the most influential guys on the team. I'll have a meeting with them in spring training, and we talk about our policies. How are we going to do this? For instance, like what's uh, what's travel going to be like? What are we what are we going to wear when we get on a bus on an airplane? Um, what, what's uh, on a daily basis? Who's permitted in our clubhouse and when? Our kids are your kids are permitted? How about dads? Uh, when we get to the playoffs, how are we going to travel during the playoffs? Uh, our families involved. Our families involved during the regular season. So during this, I, I want I want the lead bulls. I want the more influential guys on the team to create the policies because after all, they're more impacted by it than I am. I got my own office. I sit up front on an airplane. This is more about them. So when you empower your group to make those kind of decisions, um, all of a sudden things work a lot more easily and uh, seamlessly. And that's what I like to do. I like to empower the group. So when you get the right guys running in the right direction, it, 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 it kind of goes pretty swimmingly. Now, uh, having said all that, of course, I'm going to uh, approach my conversation with David Ross different than Wilson Contreras. Of course I am. Um, you do respect the time put in. You do respect uh, the pedigree of this particular person. Um, I've had different conversations with a bunch of rookies. We had some really good young guys with the Cubs more recently, and I had some great veterans. Like I said, David, um, Miguel Montero, Johnny Lester. Of course the conversation is different. You want everybody, though, is going to follow these same policies that we've generated, but conversationally it's going to be different. And, yes, I'm going to probably at some point there's going to be a little bit more latitude given to a guy that's been doing it for 10 or 15 years. Of course, that's, that would be silly to not. Um, but, again, I like to empower the group almost to raise these younger players because peer pressure is much more impactful and effective than that coming from a manager or coach. So, again, it's, it's, a, it's a big family. It is a community. Uh, you've got to raise the group as a whole. But you have to be steadfast with what you believe in as a group. But then in, I'm, I'm a big believer in individuality and the, and the individual uh, in my personal life and in the game. Most talented player you ever managed. Shohei. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could talk about the other guys. I mean, uh, even back to the Angel days, uh, Darren Erstad was pretty darn talented. Jimmy Edmonds still might have been one of the might be the best baseball player. I mean, everything. Jimmy could do everything, and he came on out of nowhere as a minor leaguer. And when he caught Fireman and went with the Cardinals, you saw everything that Jimmy can do. And there's, it's not a whole lot different between him and Ken Griffey. I know people might nuts for saying that, but on the same field on. Check that stuff out. They were both that good. Uh, Jimmy was that good. Um, more recently, like I said, Shohei. Shohei, of course, has just been DHing and pitching, but I, if you put this guy in right field for a whole season, he's an all-star right fielder. He's, an all, he's a Hall of Fame candidate right fielder. He's all of that. He runs well. He throws well. hits, hits with power. He runs the big rate. And then on top of that, he throws 90-some miles an hour. With, and he, then he creates on the fly. This guy... Uh, to learn a pitch right before the game and take it into the game and be very effective with it, very adaptable. So I, I was pretty fortunate to have run into him. Mikey Trout, and of course Mikey. Mikey's outstanding, but he can't pitch. You know, it's like um, <laughs> Shohei's just a little bit different, brother. He's different. Joe Madden, I really appreciate you giving us some of your time. We'd love to get you back on maybe when the uh, season starts or spring training, but thank you so much for the, for your time. Always welcome, and thanks for having me. Appreciate it, John. Love that interview with Joe Madden. 
World Series champion twice over. Got the Cubs there. Broke the 108-year-old streak. Uh, leave it here. Coming up later in the program, Alex Molden, former NFL defensive back. We'll talk about quarterbacks, the Super Bowl, from a defensive back's perspective. Molden on Brock Purdy and Patrick Mahomes. Leave it here. Love that interview with Joe Madden, World Series champion. Great stuff. If you uh, if you didn't catch the interview, grab a podcast of it. If you did catch it, share the podcast with somebody you think might enjoy it. I think there's something in there. There's a little bit of life coaching in that interview with Joe Madden. And certainly, uh, we're bringing baseball guests on the show like Joe Madden today, Jed Lowry yesterday, talking about um, you know the the Portland Diamond Project and uh, Major League Baseball and the start of spring training and um, what might be, what could be. Um, Love the interview with Madden. Had to get the question in about Barry Bonds. Had to get the question in about how the game has changed. Had to get the analytics stuff in there. Um, loved asking him about whether or not MLB works in Portland. Because what I'm really looking for there is it like look if Jed Lowry who grew up in the in the uh, state of Oregon and went on to play his college ball at Stanford. He was on yesterday's show, and he gets to the big leagues and then an all-star game. And if Jed Lowry, who's been out in the world, comes back to us and says, hey, baseball's not going to work. This is not going to be a thing. It's not going to happen. It's not going to be important. If he comes back and says that, I'm going to pay attention to that. But that's not what he said. He said, hey, um, you know, if they can secure the land, uh, then, you know, people will put their attach their name to it and all of a sudden you have a project and you know uh, same thing same goes for joe madden today as he comes on the show like if he says to me john there's no way i just don't see it or if he reacts just by laughing you know he he understands major league baseball he has managed at a high at the highest level of the game and scouted and worked in the minor leagues if he came back and said no portland's more like a double or triple a city I'm going to pay attention to that. And no, he's saying, look, um, rivalry with Seattle. It works. It's uh, certainly, uh, you know, the kind of project that uh, that Major League Baseball would get behind. Now, I pay attention to that. So we'll see what happens. I think the next step for the Portland Diamond Project is to go from being in negotiations with the city for the 164-acre Red Tail property in Beaverton, annexed by the city of Beaverton, owned by the city of Portland, a little bit of confusion there from some people in the last few days. City of Portland owns the parcel of land. City of uh, Beaverton annexed it in, and it's in Washington County. I originally thought it was in unincorporated Washington County. That's not true. It's in Washington County. It just doesn't have any zoning that's attached to it. So you could go in there with that 164 acres, and they could put parks. They could put shopping they could put residential in restaurants and then in the heart of it bury a uh, baseball stadium on 11 or 12 acres uh in the, in that parcel and i think you could create something kind of cool if uh, if you can uh, if you can envision that it brings us to our big splash we do this every day on the show this is the one thing you absolutely need to know today look 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 at it where down there the Big Splash! Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger, and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. 
Well, Carl Weathers played a little bit in the NFL. He played for the Raiders in the 1970-1971 seasons. Played his college football at San Diego State. He's part of an undefeated team in 1968-1969 at San Diego State. But he was majoring in theater. And who knew? You know, he found football. He found the outlet that was football. But who knew that Carl Weathers would go on uh, to star in movies? Action Jackson. Arrested Development. Of course, he played Apollo Creed in the Rockies series, 1976. He was the undisputed heavyweight world champion uh, in the movie that starred also Sylvester Stallone. Put him on the map. Carl Weathers passed away today. He uh, died today, and uh, it's a sad day for people who are Rocky fans and a lot of people remembering him in Predator alongside uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and teaching golf in Happy Gilmore, but I remember Carl Weathers from Rocky, where he played the nemesis-turned-ally Apollo Creed. Uh, Carl Weathers was 76 years old. He died uh, died yesterday. His family issued a statement saying he died peacefully in his sleep. They called him an exceptional human being who lived an extraordinary life. Um, think about the gift that Carl Weathers gave the world when it came to entertainment he not only acted he played some football he also leaves behind uh two sons that uh survived by two sons he said he was lucky to have uh to have been able to find success in multiple things and uh he uh, obviously grew up um he said idolizing jim brown muhammad ali uh harry belafonte uh among others so uh at the age of 76, Carl Weathers has passed away. Apollo Creed, may you rest in peace. Coming up, top of the hour, we will uh, talk with Alex Molden, former NFL defensive back. He obviously has a son in the NFL now. He's got another kid in high school is being highly recruited. He has launched a uh, side hustle in which he is exploring opportunities for athletes, high school and college athletes, who are uh, sort of finding their way in the new world so to speak we'll talk about all of that plus i want to know two things from alex bolden one let's talk about brock purdy and patrick mahomes how different those guys are to prepare for two let's talk about preparing for a big game in general he's next i spent my commercial break doing two things one i had to very quickly look back at the 2002 world series and look at what barry bonds did in that series blew my mind do you know he hit four home runs in that series he reached base 21 of the 30 plate appearances that he had 21 times he reached base 30 plate appearances four home runs 13 walks included in that his on-base percentage was 700 that's stupid that's just ridiculous Second thing I did during the commercial break is I started uh, looking at Alex Molden's career, which I know we've had him on. We've talked about his career. But it's remarkable to me that a kid who really didn't grow up probably playing football until, you know, high school and got into it later ends up as the 11th overall pick of the 96 NFL draft. Has a long career. Now he's got 
one kid in the NFL and another kid who, while we're doing this interview, will probably get a couple of scholarship offers. The world has changed a little bit. Like, you know, and I think it's really interesting and probably an advantage for Alex Molden's children to have a dad who's been through it a little bit, but the game has changed a little bit to the point where, like, I think the parents are all kind of learning, you know, transfer portal, NIL, the recruiting process, very different game. Alex Molden, former NFL defensive back, joining us now. How how different are these recruitments you're seeing today versus what you went through? JC, let me tell you, it, it, is, it is so – first of all, man, thanks for having me on the show on a beautiful Friday. I appreciate it. Um, man, the landscape is so different with not just the NIL, but the battle for, you know, the facilities, the coaches, the revolving door that comes along with it, and then also, like, what what relationships – that these schools can provide that can help them, you know, have success when they're done playing ball or whatever sport. It's like all these different things that you have to take into a into account, and it, and it cannot just be how much money they can get from their name, image, and likeness. So, it, man, it, it's a tough world, man. It's a tough world, but it's a. I'm glad it is the way that it is that these these athletes are able to you know, make money off of their their name and their image and their likeness. But, you know, with that, there's a lot of curveballs that, that come along the way. It, yeah, and you've, you know, you have all, you've done a lot of personal development and leadership coaching, and you've now, I think, kind of pivoted into helping young people sort of navigate that process, that transition maybe from high school to college or maybe even when they're in college trying to find their own path. And you kind of went through that. You went through it, you know, with Elijah, who ended up at Washington. You're going through it a little bit now with another one of your kids, Josiah. And, you know, you'll probably go through it again later with uh, your youngest. Like, you know, but it's, it's changed even from Elijah to now, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. With with him, you know, he was already, he was recruited highly. He got offered after his freshman year at Westland, and so, you know, we was looking out. We were always looking at, okay, Coach Peterson, he's going to be here for a while. I believe in him and, and what he's, you know, how he develops his athletes, not not just on the field, but also preparing them for life in general. So that was a big a big deal for us. But now with, you know, these athletes now are, are able to kind of form their own team, you know, because there's the 707 or the AAU, they start to develop these bonds with these different guys who live in different parts of the, of the country. And then they start to agree to all go to one school, hmm. not saying it's right or wrong, but it's different. It's totally different now. Where do you think kids pick that up? Is it the club sports scene, seven-on-seven? Are they watching NBA teams? Are are kids learning that from someplace? No, man. I I think it's like all of it, all the above. They see the LeBron. They see what's happening with that. Social media is so huge, which it can be be helpful, but it can also hurt these athletes. And the parents, based on the character that they show, 
out there, you know, with social media. But it's a it's a quick way to get noticed. If you are if you're a great athlete and you go to a, and you're in a small town, but you are you have these crazy stats and is, you show this crazy athleticism, that can be filmed, put you know packaged correctly, and then put out there so the world can see. And all it needs is one person, all it needs one John Canzano to repost that, and then it can catch fire. And you can have tons of offers, you know, the next day. Not even the next day, the next couple of hours. So, yeah, it's different, man. I'm, you know, I uh, I always talk, I talk to a lot of these coaches who are recruiting kids, and they're all really good, and they're all really impressive. And I always leave those conversations going, gosh, there are lots of right answers when it comes to making your choice. Like, I, I believe if, you know, obviously for, let's take Elijah as an example, like, you know, he goes to Washington, it works out for him, he's in the NFL, it's been good. I think he would have been fine going to Stanford or Oregon or a lot of other places. There there were lots of right answers. Like, how do, how do you drill down in a, in, you know, and how, what advice do you give kids who come to you now and say, hey, uh, I have these offers in front of me, you know, and, and they're almost overwhelmed by the, uh, by the gravity of the decision? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say, number one, like, just like you make any other, um, decision it has to be based on you know these these foundations and one of the biggest ones I think when you're choosing the right school for you know for yourself your son or daughter whatever you got to take into account the culture right like I know for me when I was growing up from Colorado Springs I was getting recruited by Tennessee that was in the SEC right and I took a trip out there and it was way different than my trip to University of Oregon or to even to CU. Like it was, it was different. Like there was some dudes. I think that was involved. I, I didn't get involved, but I saw a couple of fights that was happening within the team. No. <laughs> within the team, we went to a <laughs> went to a couple of parties, and I was like, man, these dudes they on the same team, and they about to fight. Like what? Right. So the culture is a little bit different because these dudes come from the south and for some of them man it's it's nfl or bust and so um you just got to be careful of not just making your decision off of what what um you know with, with nil how much money you're going to get it has to be like based on either the the, the culture the coaching staff are they going to be there are they going to be there right it can't just be about the cool uniforms anymore it can't like what type of alumni that that they have that can possibly help you kind of figure out like what else is there out there after football so there's a lot of things that you gotta you gotta take into account it can't just be like the the, the, you know the uniforms or they they go to bowl games so yeah now alex molden our guest first round pick 1996 nfl draft the 11th pick overall goes to the New Orleans Saints, the Chargers, the Lions after that. Um, you are doing a podcast now called The Scholarship Athlete. What are you doing with that podcast? Man, a scholarship athlete, I just get, got asked so many so many times over the years when I was training athletes, and, you know, whether the parents or the kids, like how do they get recruited, right? We get we fall in love with the with the cats who have four and five stars. Like they're going to get offers, they're going to get looked at, they're going to have coaches, you know, banging down the door. But there's a lot of cats out there who don't have any stars, but you know, happen to 
to be at the right place at the right time or be more um, proactive in terms of getting their information out there. So the, the podcast is to give tips on not just like how to be proactive in your recruiting process, but how to, how to train, how to become a better athlete, a faster, more resilient athlete. You know, the things that you have to do in terms of like, man, yeah, you got to sleep, you got to eat right. You know, if, if you really want this thing called a scholarship, there is a certain character that you have to take on to, to, to get there. So this, this podcast, a lot of it is just solo episodes, but I do have from time to time, you know, some experts in the field of, you know, training or uh, physical therapy or even sleep and, and nutrition to help these, these athletes and their parents understand, like, this whole landscape and how to navigate it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of life coaching there and a lot of parents who don't know and there's a lot of people who don't know giving advice out there. So it's good to have somebody oh, who goodness. you know Yeah, there's there's a lot of misinformation out there, isn't there? Don't dude, don't get me started, man. Whether it's from these different you know, there's recruiting uh sites that you know, you pay a third party and they go out and do the recruiting for you. And I've talked to coaches in different sports, they don't want to hear from a third party. They want to. They don't want. They don't want to hear from mom and pops. They want to hear from the athlete. So yeah, there's a lot of misinformation out there, man. Alex Molden, our guest. Um, you watch the Niners and the Chiefs in the AFC and NFC Championship game. Let's let's start with Patrick Mahomes. Um, you know, when you get a quarterback like that in a game, you played at that level. You saw greats in your era. What do you see Patrick Mahomes doing that the defenses are struggling with? It's scary that he, I put like this, I loved the damn Marinos of the world. I did not like having to deal with the Michael Vick, who can be able to extend plays, that can be able to maneuver and, you know, because we're built as DBs, as defenses, we're built on timing. Like, okay, this, I only have to cover this world-class athlete for four, three to four seconds. It gets extremely hard when you have to cover that person for eight and nine. Because now, you know, because we're scripted in terms of, like, there are only so many routes they can run. But when you have a quarterback that can extend plays, now the route tree, that's out the window. Now it's backyard football. So, he makes them very difficult. And so, you know, when you do rush him, whether it's with four, five, or six, you have to, you have to, you can't create lanes because he'll hurt you. I noticed the Niners, when they played them last time in the Super Bowl, just tried to keep Mahomes in the pocket. You know, it's not like they're not trying to sack him, but they seem to like him in the pocket rather than him freelancing. What's the strategy there from a defensive standpoint on when you come after him, how you disguise it, when you mix that up? What do you want to do to that guy? You So you have to come – because they, they're going to be watching film, right? They got your film all 17 games. These coaches are going to be breaking, breaking down for, for two weeks. They're going to know who you are, wherever you are on the field. So – you need to come at them. If you're typically blitz on third downs, you need to do it on first down. If you typically play zone on first on second down, you need to come. You need to come with different things. But 
you still have to, because you don't want to be changing your identity, right? You just have to be very smart, and the biggest, the, the, the biggest word is discipline. You cannot give him extra plays like the Baltimore Ravens did where you get, in a critical moment, you give him an extra 15 yards because it's a 15-yard penalty because you can't control your, your emotions or you tackle him around the head or you do stupid things that can cost your team. So you have to be very smart. You've got to be disciplined. And from time to time, you have to bring pressure. But it, it cannot be to get sacks. It has to be to get him and keep him in the pocket and just constrict him. How difficult is it in the heat of play to to not do something dumb that gets you 15 yards? Or did you have guys that just couldn't control their emotions you played alongside with and you just you just couldn't comprehend, like, you know, dude, you can't hit him out of bounds? I, I, granted, you played in a little bit different era where – you could put a you could put a shoulder pad on a quarterback, but but how hard is that in the heat of the battle to not draw that fifteen yard penalty? It's one of those though. It's very it's it's not that difficult. It starts with the leadership. It starts with the coaching staff. Like that first this past Monday, that should have been the first the first conversation that's had within the team coming from the head coach. And then the second conversation, once you get you break from the team and you get down to your defense and offense, it has to be reiterated from that coach, the defense coordinator, offense coordinator. And then when you get into your position, it has to it has to be like that trickle down approach. You cannot shoot yourself in the foot. And then after all that, now it has to be the players taking ownership and say, hey, we cannot do these different things. We can't do it. It's, it's, it's too important. The season is too long for you to hurt your team with one second you start to think of yourself and you think of your, or you don't, I should say, you lack. You don't think, and you just let emotions just take control. You cannot do that. So it starts from the top, man, and it has to, continue to be continually be reiterated from the coaching staff and the players. Alex Molden, former NFL defensive back with us. He's got a podcast, The Scholarship Athlete. Encourage you to check it out. You're watching the Detroit Lions 49ers NFC Championship game. You spent a little time with the Lions, but uh, what were you thinking as the Niners are coming back in the second half? It was that moment in the second half. And really, when that, when that player in the first half, when he started waving goodbye, yeah, yes. are you kidding me? What are you thinking? What are you thinking? So it's like when it started happening in the second half and they started getting turnovers and then they started scoring and they started getting stops. It's like, oh, my God, no, not again. No, not again. Momentum shift, right? It happens. It, the shift of momentum is so huge in sports. I think that's why a lot of people are drawn towards sports. You're never out of it. And so it's like – whether it's home, away, whatever, man, you cannot call in timeouts, doing stupid stuff, protecting the ball, all those things you just you have to do. And to see it come, I mean, man, kudos to the Niners, man. And, and I think what it, what it does, it gives them a sense that they're never out of it. So if I was betting, if I was betting my money, I'll bet on the Niners. If I you bet like, your money, John, yeah. I, I, I bet on the Chiefs. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you like – so you like the Niners because of that belief and 
I, I kind of here's the other thing, Alex. Like they haven't played well, and they're in the Super Bowl. And I'm going, you know, that, normally if you don't play well, you go home. They must be that good. Yeah. They're that good, and then their quarterback, Purdy. I mean, people are are they're not paying attention to him. He has the most important position on the field. He's playing quarterback, and their defense. They have a running game. They have a, a back that can hurt you in so many different ways, and then him now being able to to see openings and use his legs. I mean, man, I, I would not be surprised if they end up winning. I, I mean, they're just they're they're hitting the mark. They're hitting um, their stride when they're supposed to. You're supposed to be playing your best ball towards the end of the year, and I, I think, man, they're I think they're due. The a guy like Debo Samuel, he's like a running back split out as a receiver. I'd have to think that Alex Molden, the player, would not have had fun tackling Debo Samuel. But, you know, you would want to be on Ayuk, right? They put you on the other side of the field. Um, what do you see Debo doing, and what does he do to a defensive backfield when he's lined up out there? It's just so many. First of all, he's a, he's a thick dude, right? He's thick. He has some speed, and he plays with attitude. And he's smart, so he's not a, he's not a young guy. He's a veteran. So I think with him... You have to get your hands on them. You have to get your hands on them and make it disruptive. Receive So you want to do what the opposite of what receivers like. Receivers like to run in different, you know, spaces and not be touched. So you have to be physical with them. But then, you know, you, they can move them over to slot. They put them, um, you know, put them in the backfield. It makes it it makes it tough. But you just got to have a game plan and know where he is and know the type of situations they want to put him in for them to have success. So you just, you know, between him, you got the other receiver who makes some, some acrobatic catches and can take the, what they say, they take the take the top off of a defense. You know, you just, you, you have tight to take end. away yeah. things that they love, yes. Yeah, Kittle is one of the best tight ends in the game. I mean, they got a, you know, their offensive line is strong and deep. I mean, it's, that's going to be fun. All right. Give us an idea. You've played in big games. These guys that are preparing, there's two weeks here. Bunch of distractions. Of course, the Chiefs have been here before. They know how to handle it. The Niners were there a couple years ago. They know Most of those guys know how to handle it. But what is the uh, big game preparation, you know, as a player? When do you start locking in if you have two weeks to get to a game? Typically, like the first week, like once you once you touch down there, and you, the, the media and you know the, the space is different. Like there's going to be some distractions. So, but once you touch down, and then you get like after media day, then I think you start the things start to tighten up. Like the bolts, you start to really lock in. You should already be locked in, but just understanding, like you can't do the other stuff that you know your homeboys are going to be doing while they're in Vegas. Right, so um, you know everything is you know they're starting to tighten everything up. But once you get there, now it's a totally different story. That's what I've heard because your boy ain't never played in the Super Bowl, so it's just <laughs> what I've heard. <laughs> what I what I've heard. That's that's how you got to approach it. Yeah, look, and I know too that you know, there's a lot of guys who play for a long time and never get there. You know what would it have meant to you to get there to get to a Super Bowl? Oh my goodness! Like it's one of those things that you 
you dream of, right? I've dreamed of playing in the Rose Bowl. That was a dream. Playing in the Super Bowl was just like something that I don't is so far out there because there's so many things that you have to to do. You have to have the right the right quarterback, the right coaching staff, the right you know connection between the players, the discipline that it takes, and and then the health. You got to be healthy. So, um, man, to 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 even playing it, let alone win it, man, that's something that. You can turn it on 50 years from now, and there's going to be a, you know, you can be able to see, you know, yourself, or you can show your, your, grand, your grandkids that what you did back in the day. It's pretty cool, man. Alex Molden, check out his podcast, Scholarship Athlete. Follow him on the socials and hear him occasionally on this show. I, I wish you the best, man. I appreciate you giving us your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, JC, man. I'm. Um, appreciate you. Love love the show. Um, keep doing what you're doing, man. Thank you, my friend. All right, Alex Molden, there he is. Uh, you know, share that interview with somebody who is a high school or middle school kid or a parent who's got a kid. I mean, I just think he's such a terrific resource. And also, you know, he, uh, you know, frankly, is you know, he's got the Shark Effect podcast as well, and I think he's got a lot of life wisdom to share being an athlete who has transitioned into being a dad and being a coach and being a uh, a teacher and a mentor to a lot of people out there. Leave it here. Punch It Audio is coming up. Anna will be here for the 5 at 5. All of that's still ahead. I loved having Alex Molden on the show. A lot of life experience. If you missed that interview, grab a podcast. Two really strong interviews on the show today. Uh, Joe Madden joined us in hour one, two-time World Series champion, manager of the Chicago Cubs, among other teams, guy who's been around baseball. We talked a little bit about uh, baseball to Portland and a lot about Joe Madden's career and his experiences. Alex Molden joined us in Hour 2, former NFL defensive back, talking about the Super Bowl. He sounds like he likes the Niners. I'm not going to hate that. Uh, but I think it's going to be a great game, and I think it's going to be a little higher scoring than people are expecting. I like the over. Some points in this game. Some up and down. We'll see what happens. Uh, Anna is here. How you doing? What's going on? Good. Happy Friday. Is it Friday? Yeah. It is. What happens? Like, do you have a rhythm to your week? Most people do. Uh-huh. I don't. I kind of work a weird schedule. Yeah. Saturday's a work day because there's always games and there's, you know, Sunday's a work day because it's a good writing day. And I, I write at johnconzano.com on Sunday. So, um... The week's different for me. So what's the rhythm of the week like for you? It's just really busy in the mornings, as anybody with uh, kids knows. And so I look forward to the weekend when there is not a 5.40 a.m. alarm set to get up and make lunches. Yeah, by the way, can you uh, not set the 5.40 alarm? What? That would help me out a little bit. <laughs> you know, the other day you had the alarm, it went off. And it was full blast. Yeah. And I and I don't like what's the song you have that plays it's, as your alarm? It's called Beautiful Day. Yeah, but I've come to hate the song. I know. Cuz it signals wake up. <laughs> and <laughs> and I don't, Sometimes I have the alarm turned on like, too high. Just put on a buzzer like everybody no, else. No, I, ah, I, ah, I know. Ah, you know? I hate a buzzer. Uh, I can't stand a buzzer. Well, we're going to play some punch it audio. 
Uh, feel free to chime in here. Oh, okay. I can't wait. But uh, Jonah's going to queue it up, and away we go. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. I'm going to start in Seattle, where the Seahawks have hired Mike McDonald to be their coach. McDonald talking on Seattle Sports Radio about what kind of defense he wants to play. Punch it. Well, you're always trying to you're always trying to dictate terms as as best as you can to the offense, and that's easier said than done because the offense is trying to do the same thing to you. So there's a little bit of a back and forth to that. Um, and I think one of the principles of the organization as I sat in, in Baltimore is we want to be aggressive and we want to be pushing the envelope. And so how do you do that uh, while, you know, taking, you know, having being smart with the resources that you're allocating? You know, you want to have you want to have maximal return for minimal investment. I mean, it's easy to blitz zero every snap if you want and, and you can apply pressure that way. But you can also do it mentally and um, by how you play. Um, and the things you're presenting to the offense because they got a lot of stuff going on over there too. Right. And, um, you know, so obviously those guys are pros and there's a lot of great coaches out there, but if you can apply pressure over games, you know, that's that's hard to, to do consistently for 60 minutes. There's Mike McDonald. He's going to need players. Certainly had the players in the scheme in Baltimore where they gave up just an average of 16.5 points a game this season. He'll be the head coach. There's some reports out there that former Washington Huskies offensive coordinator Ryan Grubb could be the offensive coordinator under Mike McDonald. Here's Andy Staples talking about that. Punch it. Where should the concern level be if you're an Alabama fan on Ryan Grubb if he does leave and go to Seattle? High. It should be high. It should be high if he leaves. It should be high that he might leave because it sounds like Mike McDonald would like to hire him in Seattle. So uh, that's, yeah, I mean, Mike uh, Ryan Grubb is very important to what Kalen DeBoer does. Now, they haven't always been together. There have been times when they've been, they've been apart, but Ryan Grubb is an excellent play caller. He makes it very easy for Kalen DeBoer to administrate, and that would put DeBoer in a situation where he's got he's to hire a play caller, and that makes it pretty interesting. That, that makes it a much tougher situation than it would have been. It's sort of like, you know, Sharon Moore taking over at Michigan. And you're like, as long as they keep the strength coach, they're going to be fine. And then the strength coach leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Grubb sounds like he's the guy in. Is it anything official yet, Judah, with the Seahawks? But multiple reports saying he could, might be. Is he 100%? Is he 100%? Is he not? Is he 98%? What are you hearing? <laughs> I think he's the favorite. I, I don't think it's official. There's the passing game coordinator with the Detroit Lions, who I know was also part of the interview process. I don't know. Uh, I'm blanking on his name. but uh, Ing, Ingstrom? Ing, yes. Ingstrom, yes. something like that. Right. Yeah. So one of the, the passing game coordinators to, to Ben Johnson. Uh, but just the idea of Ryan Grubb possibly going from Seattle to Tuscaloosa back to Seattle to the NFL, no less, with a new head coach is kind of a, a fun to think about. But that would leave Bama in a bit of a precarious position. Tanner Ingstrand is the uh, passing game coordinator in Detroit. He is supposed to be the succession plan uh, at offensive coordinator. Uh, he's got some experience with Jim Harbaugh as well. 
But Ryan Grubb uh, feels ready-made for this. And here's the other thing that I just jumped into my head. I mean, we're just seeing college coaches now who are looking around at NIL and the transfer portal, no collective bargaining agreement, no contracts, nothing to keep your quarterback in place. It's uh, The ground is – the sands are shifting beneath their feet, so to speak, when you're in the college game. And we're seeing college coaches who are head coaches who are throwing in the towel, Nick Saban, David Shaw, Chris Peterson – Boston College's coach, Chip Kelly, may be interviewing for the Washington Commander's offensive coordinator. I think we're seeing college coaches vote loudly that, you know, this this thing uh, that is college sports doesn't feel safe to them anymore. So Ryan Grubb, he may go to Tuscaloosa, look around and go, you know what, this doesn't look any more stable than anywhere else in college football. Would he choose the Seahawks? And a lifestyle upgrade probably for his family in Seattle? Or does he want to be a head coach in college football? I don't know. But I think we're about to find out. And I think he's going to vote when he gets offered this job. And I will not be surprised if he is the offensive coordinator of your Seahawks. The the scheme would be interesting. They just game planned for that Michigan defense where Mike McDonald kind of constructed that Michigan scheme a couple years ago before handing it off to Jesse Minter. So there's a lot of familiarity between that McDonald defensive scheme and then Grubb's offensive game plan for that national title game. They, it could be a little iron sharpening iron in that coaching room as well if he chooses the Seahawks. Do they move up in the draft and select Michael Penix Jr.? <laughs> so it begins. Why not? I, Why not? I, I just have to wonder. They're at 16, right? They might be able to get him there. I don't they know. Might. It, it'll be interesting. Or do you grab... Uh, do you, grow, do you go on defense because you got a defensive head coach? Keep an eye on that. Super Bowl time. Golden Joe Montana quarterbacked both the 49ers and the Chiefs, although he really is the 49ers quarterback. He was asked about Brock Purdy on the Pat McAfee show. Here's Golden Joe. Punch it. I think the thing I see is something that I think I figured out early on in my career was that what the offense is about. Right. It wasn't about me. It was about getting the ball to the people who knew what to do with it, because all I, I I'm the mailman. I'm gonna, this doesn't belong to me. I want to get it to somebody that knows how to run, knows how to catch. And we had, especially late in my career, when you get guys like Jerry Rice, John Taylor, Brent Jones, Roger Craig um, on down the line, all you got to do is get the ball to them. And, and I think if you look at the weapons that Rock's working with, he's figured that offense out. He understands what his position is. He doesn't try to make a big play. He knows when that chance will come and when he needs to do it. But in most cases, it's okay to punt. Yeah, it, look, I, I see the same thing, some of the same things, but it's nice to hear it from you know a pro football Hall of Famer. I, I, I do see Brock Purdy, though, taking some chances. He took one deep shot down the field. Maybe it was an ill-advised throw, and it ends up in a big 50-yard completion to Brandon Ayuk. You see him situationally taking a risk, but you know Joe Montana's right. You know you can call, you can call Brock Purdy a system guy. People called Joe Montana a system guy. He was in the West Coast offense. People led with that early in his career, and they only later talked about him as being great after he won multiple, you know, Super Bowls and was, uh, you know, playing at a Pro Football Hall of Fame le- level. Meanwhile, Andy Reid talking about the 49ers offense, and he's he's leading with Christian McCaffrey. 
punch it. Yeah, sure. Kyle's one of the most creative guys in the league. You knew he was going find, to find ways to uh, maximize them, uh, the different tools that he has. McCaffrey's got phenomenal tools. Uh, can catch, block, uh, run. I mean, he does it all. And Kyle's exploited even more than what it had been before. McCaffrey's the 49ers offensive MVP and probably their team MVP. When he runs the ball and they use him in all the ways they use him, it opens everything else up. We talk about Debo Samuel. We talk about George Kittle, but we shouldn't do that before talking about Christian McCaffrey. Meanwhile, in basketball, Oregon was at USC last night. Jackson Shellstad, the pride of West Lynn High School, led all scorers with 20. Punch it. He struggled against UCLA the other night. And Jackson Shellstad, who had 21 against SC up in Eugene, comes back and answers with a triple. By the pressing defense. Kuznard missed it. The tip, though, good by <laughs> Shellstad. Smallest guy in the court. Please, without water, you can't survive. Really? And we will survive. Here's another basket for Shellstad as he is off to a tremendous start. He averages 12 points per game. I love the way this guy plays. Love the way he plays it without water. <laughs> You can't survive. How about that, Anna? That's so random. Just throwing in a little bit of science in the (laughs) middle of the broadcast. You know? At least he's not talking about going up to the hot springs like he sometimes does. I don't mind that. You know? Uh, Skinny dipping in the hot springs. Oh. You know? (laughs) Bill Walton. Um, Look, uh, Jackson Shellstad played a really important and key role for Oregon when they were without Infali Dante and and uh, Biddle early in the year. And it was it's interesting to me as Nate Biddle and Dante have come back to see how Dana Altman's trying to get Jackson Shellstead involved but can't quite, you know, get him in rhythm in the way that he was earlier in the year. And I think it really really stood out in the Arizona game the other night, last weekend at home at Matthew Knight Arena, like, Shellstead was a non-factor and it wasn't his fault. I just think Oregon was struggling, like, how, you know, where, what is his role? You know, are you are you playing outside in, inside out? Like, you, you know, I just think they're trying to figure out who they are. Last night, Biddle can't go. So you're without him all of a sudden, and it was no surprise to me that Jackson Shellstead picked up the slack. I think if Oregon's going to have a good year, and I think they still can, I think Jackson Shellstead has to play this kind of role. And I think Dana Altman, he's smart. He's a smarter basketball person than all of us. I think he'll figure that out. Leave it here. You got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Five o'clock hour is the happy hour. We started with the five at five. We got a big guest coming up. Spencer McLaughlin's going to talk to us about the Oregon and Washington transition to the Big Ten Conference. Anna's got the five biggest stories going on. Anna, who was Miss American Teen when she was a kid, and then never did a damn thing after that. (laughs) Wow. A couple of Emmys. Had some... Got married. What happened to Miss American Teen? I hope people oh. are just tuning in. I know. They, so they'll miss like, the joke. Oh, he's so mean. I got that one time. Somebody, I was asking you about your childhood. Yeah. For people who don't know, you know, you immigrated here when you were two mm-hmm. from Taiwan. 
And your parents bought a 28-unit motel on Sandy Boulevard. Yep. Sandy and 115th. And I, one time I was talking to you about it, this was months and months ago, and I was sort of trying to point out to people, because I think it's an incredible story, and I think even to this day when our kids will backtalk you, I'm like, you don't know who you're messing with. <laughs> you don't know who you're messing with here. Um, you just saw some things growing up. You were, you were around crime. You were around, um, you know, there was prostitution and... There was it wasn't a safe area of Sandy Boulevard in your childhood. Correct. And I was talking to you about it. And and I had a caller later who or a listener who wrote me an email later and said that she was she felt like I was making fun of you. (laughs) And I was like, no, I'm trying to give the audience an idea of kind of what you saw growing up. And the fact that you went on to get a full ride scholarship to Pepperdine and become an Emmy Award-winning newscaster and anchor. And, you know, it's it's a remarkable story. Yeah, but I think a lot of people have the opportunity. Like, we've all seen stuff. We've all experienced things. And I think I always say um, that that experience growing up, you know, checking in customers at, like, 11 years old, evaluating whether they were going to commit felonies on the property, uh, perf- perfectly prepared me for a job as an investigative journalist someday because like nothing surprised me, and so I and think you weren't we afraid could, either. I wasn't, but I think if you really look at your life and the things that you've experienced, you can utilize the things that you you've you know gone through to benefit you today. I in had your to career assure, in your yeah. personal life. I had to assure the woman that I wasn't making fun of you and that you were okay with it. <laughs> I even turned to you, I think, at the time and said, hey, did you feel like I was making fun of you? And you said, no. And I said, OK. But there's a book. Uh, there's a book that was written. It's called The Other Wes Moore. Mm-hmm. And it's about two kids named Wes Moore. This is a nonfiction book. Yeah. Two kids named Wes Moore who grew up within a mile of each other. Mm-hmm. One of them went on to become a Rhodes Scholar and was a war hero. Mm-hmm. The other went to prison and spent a life incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Two kids, same name, grew up within a mile of each other. What what was the difference? And I had a uh, local superintendent of one of the school districts who had recommended it to me. Mm-hmm. And we were having a conversation. In fact, we were having a conversation about you. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, it's just amazing to me that, you know, you grew up in this area where you very could have easily had bad influences. Uh, you, you had a single-parent household. You immersed yourself in school and academics probably because you were hiding out from whatever was going on you know the messy stuff yeah for sure and and you went you chose the right direction you very easily could have gone a different direction and it could have been a very different story and um you know we could be doing this interview in a jailhouse (laughs) but it it's that like those little those micro choices that are made but is it a or is it a micro thing or is it a macro thing? Um, it's both, but I think one of the key factors was that I had great mentors. I had phenomenal adults who entered my life in various ways, maybe saw something in me and decided to stick around and guide me. You know, I had a, a Yale graduate um, English professor from Centennial High School who took me, uh, you know, his family took me under their wing. The, the wife was a second grade teacher, um, the Kaufman family. I talk about them a lot. Um, and, you know, I was over at their house all the time playing checkers, playing chess with them. He was 
helping me decide what courses to take from middle school on, pushing me to take honors classes instead of general ed, you know. So just people like that. Uh, Your Auntie Joyce, who isn't your aunt, I found out years after being married to you. (laughs) Yeah. She's just like your fairy godmother. Right. Joyce uh, Marshak. Yep. Yeah. Joyce Marshak, who just was there for me in so many ways, is like a second mother because my mom was stuck at the motel running it. And it was Joyce that was taking me to Rose Festival activities and, um, you know, showing me a world beyond the, a 28-unit motel on Sandy Boulevard. So, so it's interesting to think about it from your standpoint, but I want to pivot it a little bit for our listeners. Like, there's there might be a kid in your in your uh, ecosystem, in your orbit, in your church, and you know your neighborhood, who, who could benefit from a mentor. So, it, you know, find a mentor, be a mentor, um, and it's good. I think it's good advice for us all, and to think about the impact that we can have in on other people that is even from a, a distance. Definitely. Let's do the five at five. The five at five. Number one. Oh, where to start? Okay, let's talk about, um, this is one of those stories that we're going to see ad nauseum leading into the Super Bowl because people need to find different ways to write about the Super Bowl as it comes up. The story for today is the college football programs with the most players in Super Bowl 58. Should I go in reverse order? Well, yeah, whatever's interesting. Okay, well, it's there, your thing. there's a tie for fifth, which is interesting. There's a tie for fifth between TCU, Rutgers, Penn State, and Middle Tennessee State. All of those have three players in the Super Bowl. There's a tie for third, Michigan, Florida, and Michigan and Florida both okay. have four players. Okay. At number two is what? What do you think? Is it Oregon? No. Oregon... Was Georgia? On the, yes, number two is Georgia. Georgia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It has five players in the Super Georgia Bowl. Georgia has a couple. Georgia has... I mean, Oregon has a couple. Oregon has a couple, but yeah. it didn't make this list. Okay, it's not all right. Georgia. And number one is Oklahoma. It has six players in the Super Bowl. Wow. Oklahoma. Think about that. Is that interesting think. or not? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Okay. I think it's interesting, too, that, like, Oregon has two, and they didn't get on the list? No. Uh-uh. Huh. Yeah, it didn't make the cut. Well, when you go by conference, uh, I wonder how it works out, too, by the way. You know, the Ivy League has a, a player or two. We'll see. We'll see how it breaks down. But uh, I always, I'm always, i always interested in that. I also thought it was interesting. I saw a stat from somebody who said that um, Alabama, there's a streak right now for players who finish college at Alabama. Yeah. Okay? Quarterbacks. Who finished college at Alabama. Okay. So Jalen Hurts doesn't count because he didn't finish at Alabama. Okay. Okay. Quarterbacks who finish at Alabama have never scored a point in the Super Bowl history. <laughs> okay. Now people will say, what about Ken Stabler? What you know, what about Joe Namath? They didn't score themselves. Throwing a touchdown pass is different. But Alabama quarterbacks have still not scored a single point. In Super Bowl history. Huh. Odd fact. Yeah. But Jalen Hurts didn't finish at Alabama, so don't at me on that one. <laughs> Alabama fans are mad about that. Number two. 
I'm loosely staying with the Super Bowl. Uh, did you know that Christian McCaffrey's mother, Lisa, has a podcast? No, I did not. Mm-hmm. It's called Your Mom. And she caused, uh, this is like one of another one of those like story but not really a story stories. Okay, I'm with it though. So she's saying that they looked into getting a suite at the Super Bowl and none of us can afford it. <laughs> she says, not even Christian money bags over there. Nor his fiance, Moneybags Olivia. That's how she calls her future daughter-in-law. So she says, we're not in a suite. I'll tell you that right now. Now, okay. I, I, but I got to think Christian McCaffrey can afford a suite. Right. The suites, by the way, are going for, there's still some available. Yeah. They're ranging from 300000 to $2.5 huh. do, do you think his mom was kind of throwing a little shade at him or maybe trying to guilt him into getting a suite well the update is that olivia colpo which is you know the yeah. model slash actress that he's engaged to power couple uh has hooked her future mother-in-law up with a suite for the super Bowl. oh good for by 1 30 that was the update that she wanted to give it to her as a birthday present because yeah apparently well, the mother-in-law's birthday is next week. christian mccaffrey's base salary is almost 12 million dollars this year his base salary <laughs> he'll make another 12 next year but i don't think he could possibly be comfortable with his mother-in-law having a podcast and saying stuff like nah, this. everybody's got a podcast you know but <laughs> but his deal you know he had a 64 million dollar deal with the panthers yeah including a 21 million dollar signing bonus he can afford the damn suite by the way did you know her mother christian mccaffrey's grandfather so his mother's father okay is somebody named dave sim do you uh -huh. know? Have you heard the name? No. He was a sprinter who won a silver medal in the hundred meter dash in the nineteen sixty Olympics. Mm -hmm. So you got his dad, Ed McCaffrey, played in the NFL. Okay. Mom's got, you know, some yeah. Olympic. Uh, you know, he's like the fat one of the fastest people in the world in nineteen sixty. Mm -hmm. Not bad genes yeah. there for Christian McCaffrey. It's pretty good genetics. Yeah. Yeah. Can I make a fearless prediction about Christian McCaffrey? Of course. Christian McCaffrey will be president of the United States someday. Stop it. Why? I think he's got that. He's got kind of the makeup of it. And I think his Stanford degree, all-American guy, he doesn't seem to want to take a political stance anywhere, but he's a smart guy. Uh -huh. I think Christian McCaffrey has a future in politics. All Prediction. Right. I think he will, it here. I think Christian McCaffrey will be president of the United States. Number three. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, let's see. Do you want to hear about Bill Walton or Gary Payton? Come on, Bill Walton. All right. Uh, Bill Walton admits, for anyone that was listening to the broadcast last night of Oregon against USC, he admits that uh, he auditioned for the role of Chewbacca in Star Wars. His uh, co-host was saying, hey, is it true that you were in the mix to play Chewbacca? And he said he auditioned for Chewbacca, but they said, no, we're not going to take you. We're going to model the character after you. What? Yes. That's what he said. Oh, I need to get Bill Walton back on. We have a whole nother <laughs> train of thought to go after. Oh, isn't that funny? Last time we had Bill Walton on... Yeah, we were uh, talking about the pandemic. Yeah. He was he gave like a, a hype speech for our listeners. Mm -hmm. We will get by. We will survive. 
we are alive. Just think about those moments, you know, when it's tough, when you're on the bottom of a long, hard climb, when you don't know how the game is going to play out. But you look around and you see who's there and you see who's on your side. We are Oregon. We are going to get this done. We are the luckiest people in the world. We are alive. We can make a difference. Here we go, John. Much love, eternal gratitude. Shine on, heal on, ride on, play on, carry on, Oregon on, BFT on. Yes, Canzano on. Thank you, John. <laughs> I should have told him. You know what Anna says? She said I didn't do a damn thing. <laughs> See what Bill Walton says to that. What are we on? Number four now? Uh, maybe. Number four. Here we go. Have you read anything about what's happening with Gary Payton at Lincoln University in California? Tell me more. He's in his third season as the men's basketball coach there. He has not received a salary the past two years. <laughs> so he's basically been volunteering as the head coach. He says the team has had to cancel three trips because they couldn't afford to travel. He had an assistant coach quit because the school stopped paying assistant coaches. And Peyton himself says that he's had to pay for team uniforms, shoes, and meals on the road. He's venting to USA Today Sports. He says he's not going to sit here and sugarcoat it anymore. And they've got to run the program the way it's supposed to be run. Did you hear what the president said? President <laughs> fired back. Now, this is like, for somebody who understands public relations, yeah. this gives me a stomachache. Right. Because this is not how you want internal issues to be aired, right? Yep. So the president is quoted as saying, Gary is a spoiled child. We have to understand he is a star and he wants everybody to service him. And if somebody's not servicing him, he's frustrated. I think both things can be true. I think that it's true that Lincoln University is probably not supporting its basketball program in a way that uh, needs to be supported. In fact, the football and football coaches have also said, yeah, we understand Gary's pain. But then uh, Mikhail Brodsky, the president at Lincoln, aptly points out that a lot of the NBA players who have been uh, coddled and handed uh, five-star hotel rooms and chartered flights don't adapt well to making the transition back to civilian life at Lincoln University. Gary, look around. You're at Lincoln University. I didn't know there was a Lincoln University until this story broke. I don't think it ends well for Gary Payton and that president. Yeah. Number five. Finally. <sighs> Finally. Um, you can tell I'm kind of on a trend today. And I apologize. It's probably not my best five at five, mm. but it's the stuff that interested me. Remember we talked about last week Alyssa Milano starting a GoFundMe to raise cash yes. for her kids' baseball yeah. team? <laughs> well, it didn't end there. Because she could, took so much flack from people that were like, why are you asking us for money so that your kid can go to Cooperstown? Can't you pay for that? In fact, can't you pay for the whole team to go? And she's still talking about this. So people were attacking her son on social media 
The son was on Instagram sticking up for his mom, and now she's weighing in saying every parent raises money for their child's sports teams. Many of them do it through GoFundMe. I am no different. <laughs> I uh, tend to want to side with Alyssa Milano. Really? But, I, I mean, I just think so. It's the same thing as Gary Payton. She doesn't know. She doesn't know what regular life he looks like. She's lived a, uh, a a very soft existence, and she did what a lot of people who are out of touch do. She made a misstep. She posted on social media. It was a GoFundMe alongside the GoFundMe for like you know people who were having brain surgery and kids who were in pediatric cancer pediatric yeah. cancer ward. Yeah, she's asking for little league yeah donations like. She needs to get a grip, but I also think, like, it's the same as Gary Payton. Like, you know, she's just, she's been serviced her whole life, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. But I think, I find it funny that it's, like, her against the nameless, faceless mob that is the public. She loses that one as well. I don't think she's helping herself by no. continuing to weigh in here. Just say, oh, you know what? I didn't think about it. I'm sorry. You know? Because you know what's going to happen? You know, she played on Who's the Boss. Yeah. It ain't going to be like when her time comes, it ain't going to be Alyssa Milano, who child actress who played on Who's the Boss. No, it's going to be Alyssa Milano who had a GoFundMe backlash uproar in the 2020s. <laughs> She's going to have a whole other category on her Wikipedia page. <laughs> I, If you Google her, the first resor- result is not, you know, Who's the Boss. Right. It's Anymore. GoFundMe backlash. Yes. That's it. She says, as much as I would love to pay for the entire team and their families for travel, transportation, hotel, food and beverage, etc., I cannot afford to do so. Maybe someday. Well, get back to work. <laughs> Go make a movie. See if you still got it. Okay? How about that? All right, coming up, Spencer McLaughlin. He's going to talk about Oregon and Washington's transition to the Big Ten Conference. Super Bowl next week, uh, all week long, we will be popping in and out of Vegas with uh, a lot of big guests who will be joining from Radio Row in Las Vegas in the run-up to the 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs playing on Super Bowl Sunday. 49ers a two-point favorite in the game. I am looking forward to it. Um, Alex Molden joined us earlier in the show, talked about why Patrick Mahomes is difficult to defend, talked about the keys to defending a quarterback like that, talked about Brock Purdy. Uh, we'll unpack a little bit of that later in the program. Also, uh, grab the podcast if you uh, are looking for it. Um, our next guest, Spencer McLaughlin, hosts a podcast called Locked on Ducks. He also does work at 750thegame.com. You can see his written work, and he joins this show occasionally as our Ducks insider. He's joining us now live via satellite from his lair. Where are you right now, Spencer McLaughlin? Cedar City, Utah, John. A beautiful place if I've ever seen one. I like that. What's the weather like? Set the scene for us. What's Cedar City, Utah like? You know, it it gets snowy in the months of December, January, and February-ish, but that's why St. George is 45 minutes away down I-15, and that's Phoenix light. So I've got year-round golf up here, but, you know, when it's, uh, when it's fall time, there are a few places as beautiful that I've seen as uh, the Pacific Northwest and Cedar City. There are these 
just beautiful red rock hills that surround the city that when they get dusted with snow in the winter time just look like you're in in some sort of movie or fake scene and the scenery all around is, is quite fantastic. And, you know, before I moved here a couple of years ago, I'd never been to Utah, and I, I'm loving every second of it. What brought you there? Uh, work. I am the play-by-play voice for Southern Utah University, and I got an opportunity to come out here a couple of years ago, and we've continued to expand and uh, tweak and adjust my role at the school in, in a good way. And uh, this is my third season doing play-by-play for, for the Thunderbirds on radio and ESPN+. Plus. Love that. Uh, you know, look, I want to place a clip for you. Change of scenery for okay. Oregon and Oregon and Washington as well next season as they'll go to the Big Ten. Josh Pate of 24-7 Sports was doing an interview there, and he talked about Washington football joining a new conference. He called it bad timing. I want to play this clip. I want to get your reaction to it. Washington, same thing, man. Tier three. I think it's terrible timing for them to be joining a new conference. The program's committed, though. That's very, very important because we haven't always said that about Washington athletics up there to this degree. It's a tough time to be transitioning because of what just happened to the program. You're not losing. No one's losing 20 of 22 starters off a championship team and just rolling merrily along. I mean, talent factories like Georgia wouldn't roll merrily along. They've got to be smart, too, regarding talent. they got to be smart with the way they try and recruit. Washington cannot recruit like Oregon does. Two totally different entities. So they've got to be a much smarter program with the way they approach talent acquisition. There, you agree with Josh on that front? Is is this just bad timing for Jed Fish's program? Well, I think it was going to be bad timing for whoever was, was Washington's head coach for 2024, will be, I should say. And, of course, that's going to be Jed Fish, but – you know, Washington had all the stars aligned for their 2023 season, and they, you know, made their best swing at it, and they they took a pretty damn good swing at, at winning a national championship there. But it was definitely an all chips into the front of the table mentality, and that was the feeling going into the year, and why expectations were so high up in Seattle is that you had all these guys coming back, you had a bunch of veterans, you had Michael Penix, you had. Uh, the, the great offensive line as well that went on to win the Joe Moore Award, and I think deservedly so with the way they protected Penix all year, really the last two years. So I, I think on the it's bad timing to go to the Big Ten, I, I think it's just bad timing, period. I don't think it really matters what league you are in if you're Washington. You know, with the way that they've recruited over the last couple of years, they've got some capable players. You can get guys in the transfer portal, but – if the Pac-12 had stayed together, we'd feel the same way about Washington. Because if the Pac-12 still had Oregon in it and USC and maybe Oregon State with Jonathan Smith and Utah and Arizona on the rise, we'd look at Washington the same way, which is this is not a conference contender in 2024. And I don't think anybody expects them to be. So I think Pate is onto something there. I just don't think that it's specific to the Big Ten. You know, I think they could be ripe to – have a 7-5 a, a sort of season, 8-4 and four sort of year if they were maybe even in the Big 12, which, which has got a decent depth of teams. Or, you know, the ACC I don't think is particularly deep, but they've got some strong teams up at the top. I think Washington, you, you know, would face the same problem in any conference. They just happen to be going into the Big 10, which is one of the power two conferences in college football. Yeah, I think, you know, Oregon has this – Great recruiting class, and they're recruiting through the roof, literally. And 
you know, doing it on a level that they haven't done before, and they've got some continuity with a coach. And I just think, like, you know, when was it going to be a good time? But on top of the fact that, like, Washington, you know, do you get the sense that Washington just, it was lightning in a bottle, they peaked in a year, they had Penix, they had DeBoer, and it was just the right time, right people, and, man, they hit something, they hit with something. Or can Washington, using its collective and its brand, can they – can they build back and become a top five school in the Big Ten in your mind? I, I don't think that it's a TCU style lightning in the bottle. There was an element of last season that certainly is not readily repeatable with the way that program has been run, but they're the only Pac twelve school, formerly RIP, to make the four team playoff on multiple occasions. When when Washington has the right coach in place they are a top 10 program or team in college football that has been evident over you know the last decade or so once chris peterson got there right they'd fallen all the way down with an 0 and 12 year steve sarkeesian kind of established a base level of success and then they brought in chris peterson and he took them up to where they're capable of being and then they fell back down under jimmy lake and they built back up under kaylin the boar and I, I think that if you have the right coach in place there, that's a team and a program that, as Pate says, is bought in and does want to win and is willing to do what, what they can to give themselves the best chance to do so. And they gave themselves the best chance to do so. I mean, a big reason that they were able to make this run was Michael Penix. Why was Michael Penix there? Because Washington had enough NIL money. I, I think that's why Bo Nix came back to Oregon, at least partially as well. Both felt like they had unfinished business. But both guys also were able to come back and, you know, make – I don't know the figures, and I don't know that anyone will, will ever know the exact amount, but it seems to be the going rate for quarterbacks in the NIL market today of that caliber is one, two, three, four million dollars, depending on which school you are at. So clearly Washington has got the community investment, the boosters, to be competitive. Are they Oregon? No. But also they're capable of beating Oregon – when they are when they are right, when they've got the right coach, and when things have been built the way that they're supposed to in the eyes of Husky fans. So I, I think for Washington going forward, if they've made the right hire in Jed Fish, and I think he's a really good football coach, I was a little surprised, though not entirely, that he left Arizona, given the situation they have going into next year. I, I think that Washington can absolutely be a top-five program in the Big Ten, I don't know about every single year. I'm curious to see how Jed Fish recruits up there in Montlake. But to say that that was a TCU level, you know, had it all going their way and everything, sure, they caught some breaks and they won a bunch of close games and everything like that. But if you put 2023 Washington on the field against 2022 TCU, I'll take Penix and the Huskies by 10 points. Yeah, I just wonder with Penix being gone – you know, that's a divot you're going to have to replace anyway. And, you know, Jed Fish, I think he's a good coach, small sample size. I do hear some angst, Spencer, from some key Washington uh, supporters who are saying they're not as sold on Fish as they were Kalen DeBoer when he walked through the door because he had a larger proof of performance, larger sample size. What, what, what's realistic next season for Jed Fish? Seven, eight? How many games can he win? I mean, make a bowl game and you have to call it a success when you lose 20 starters. I, 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 I don't know that I've seen that in, in college football recently that, that I can remember because that, that's just 
an unconscious number of of guys to lose. And he's brought in some players from Arizona. He, he's kept a couple guys that committed to Washington via the transfer portal in the offseason. But they're, they're going to have a very new team next year, to be sure. But when you look at their schedule, it, it's got some tougher games on the back end of it. But they could be feeling pretty confident through the first few weeks. They start with Weber State and Eastern Michigan at home. Those will be wins. I don't think we're going to have a repeat of Montana in 2021. Then they've got the Apple Cup at Lumen Field. That could be a really tough competitive game. But then they start with Northwestern at home and Rutgers on the road, which is, you know, just wrong. But, like, that's a different conversation here. Northwestern and Rutgers, those are not top-tier Big Ten teams. Then they get the national championship rematch at home against Michigan, and Michigan is going to be a pullback team from what they were a season ago. Then they go at Iowa and at Indiana. It's the final four games where their schedule gets tough. They host USC. They go at Penn State. They host UCLA, who may or may not have Chip Kelly as their head coach. We'll see. And then they go at Oregon. That's a difficult stretch. But those first eight games, look, I don't think Washington is a Big Ten contender or anything close to it. But with Will Rogers at quarterback and Jed Fish as your head coach, They've got a couple of other solid pieces. I think they kept Jeremiah Hunter, the receiver from Cal. That's a solid number one go-to guy. They brought in Ephesians Prysock, the transfer corner from Arizona. Pretty sure they grabbed the running back, Jonah Coleman, as well. Like, there are a couple pieces here and there. They're going to be light in the trenches, which could be tough in the Big Ten, like when they go at Iowa on October 12th. But I, I think that Jed Fish and the Huskies are a bowl team here. Six, I think eight wins is probably your ceiling. And it's probably a six or seven win year, and I think that that's okay. Spencer McLaughlin is our guest. You can read his work at 750thegame.com. Uh, Spencer, the Ducks uh, will will have more momentum, more depth, Dan Lanning back, recruiting through the roof. Um, I think you know I've gone from saying this is going to be harder than expected to watching you know Michigan, as you said, take a step back, uh, looking at Ohio State going, yeah, they're recruiting well, but – uh, they lost a little shine last year, and I'm kind of looking uh, looking around that conference, and I'm going, gosh, can you pick Oregon with a straight face to be second in the Big Ten next season? What do you see? Yeah, you can do it with a straight face. Ohio State is very good. I, I, I think Ohio State has got an excellent roster. That That's a team that needed better quarterback play than they got a season ago. Uh, I, I don't think that – Kyle McCord was very impressive, and the evidence of that is that he's no longer their quarterback for for the 2024 season. They brought in a veteran in Will Howard from Kansas State. You could pick either one. I, I don't know how you could pick anyone else to be the favorite. You know, Penn State is going to be a good team. They're always a good team, but they haven't proven that they can contend with the big boys consistently. James Franklin, during his tenure over there in in Happy Valley, is – four and 16 against Michigan and Ohio state. Uh, I mean, it, it has not been good. And Jonathan Smith is not going to be able to, you know, have a big pop year in, in his first season in East Lansing with Michigan state. I'm sure he can get it going eventually, but I don't think it's going to be in year one. I, I think Ohio state and Oregon are the class of the big 10 and you can make the case one way or the other. It could come down to that Oregon game hosting Ohio state on October 12th at Austin stadium. That could be the, game of the week in college football might be one of the games of the year in college football. And, you know, I think it could have a, an Oregon Washington feel 
from a season ago in terms of the ramifications for making the playoffs in the Big Ten championship games. A little bit different in the 12-team era, but I, I look at Oregon, Ohio State. They've had fantastic off seasons with a commonality as well, which is a lot of guys specifically on defense, but a couple on offense, decided to come back when they could have gone to the NFL. You look at guys like JT Tuomolau for, for Ohio State, who's a fantastic defensive end. Then they bring in Caleb Downs, the five-star safety from, uh, from Alabama, who was an All-American. And then you look at Oregon, and they get Jordan Birch back at defensive end, Jeffrey Bossa at linebacker, and they're just a, a number of other guys that they've brought in or returning that you look at and go, oh, those are impact players that make Oregon a better team because they're there once again. So I, I think both of these teams have, have got that in common. Their head coaches are there. They've brought in good transfer portal quarterbacks who, you know, can do what they need them to do to win games. And I, I think those two have got to be your two favorites in the Big Ten. I'm a little bit surprised that there's not more, I guess, concern about Dylan Gabriel, the transfer quarterback that everybody expects to start for Oregon. Um, I'm not hearing people go, gosh, can he be Bo Nix? Gosh, can he, what can he be? You know, what do you think Dylan Gabriel can be? What you, you said, what they need out of him. What does Dan Lanning need from him? He needed them to be the same guy. Just, just be the same guy he was last year. I, I mean, Dylan Gabriel last season ran for 12 touchdowns, threw for 30, had six interceptions, and threw for 3,600 yards, completing just under 70% of his passes. You, you don't need a ton more than that. He demonstrated a clutch factor in the Red River showdown when he moved Oklahoma right down the field to win the game against Texas. That was an outstanding effort individually. You talk about the impact one guy made. He didn't play the year prior. They lost 49 nothing. He plays. They win the game outright uh, as an underdog in that game. So I, I think that for Oklahoma – to you know, have basically prepared him for this season is a great benefit for the Ducks because he's played in big games, he's played in close games, he's been productive, he's you know had a clutch factor. He certainly wasn't perfect last year, and Oregon doesn't need him to be Bo Nix. You know, they they need him to be what he was a season ago, a, a high, highly efficient quarterback that executes the offense, somebody who comes in and you know, knows where the ball is supposed to go. He works in tandem with Will Stein like Bo Nix did and understands the scheme of a play and what you're supposed to do and reading the defense well and then make some plays with your legs every now and then. And if he's able to do all those things consistently, then he'll succeed and Oregon will succeed. They might not quite be where they were a season ago. I mean, they were, you know, a top five offense in all of college football. Bo Nix is a Heisman finalist. Dylan Gabriel's got the third-best Heisman odds in all of college football right now. I think that's too high, but I, I, I think it's a testament to where Oregon is at. I think that's reflective of what the betting markets feel about Oregon and the success they can have next year in the Big Ten. Spencer McLaughlin, find him, Locked on Ducks podcast, and you can find his work at 750thegame.com. Spencer, you have a good weekend, buddy. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Go Ducks. There he goes. Spencer McLaughlin talking about Washington's transition, Oregon's transition. I think it could be a little bit of an eye-opener for the Huskies. I think Jed Fish is a good coach. I think you lose 20 of 22 starters. Uh, yeah, you're in a transfer portal era, but you're not only making the move to the Big Ten, you're you're trying to backfill on a roster that has you know a hole in the bottom of the bucket. Leave it here. We'll, we'll uh, 
talk about the Super Bowl uh, and the sinking ticket prices in Vegas. Is that real? Hour number one, we had two-time World Series champion Joe Madden, former manager of the Chicago Cubs and the Angels and the Rays. He joined us in hour one. Great conversation with Joe Madden. We talked uh, all about baseball. We talked about the most talented player that he's ever coached. We talked about baseball in Portland. Would it work? We talked about managing different kinds of players. Here's Joe Madden when I asked him the most talented player he's ever coached. Keep in mind, Shohei Otani, Mike Trout, yeah, those kinds of guys. Most talented player you ever managed? Shohei. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could talk about the other guys. I mean, uh, even back to the Angel days, uh, Darren Erstadt was pretty darn talented. Jimmy Edmonds still might have been one of the might be the best baseball player. I mean, everything. Jimmy could do everything, and he came on out of nowhere as a minor leaguer. And when he caught Fireman and went with the Cardinals, you saw everything that Jimmy can do. And there's, it's not a whole lot different between him and Ken Griffey. I know people might nuts for saying that, but on the same field on. Check that stuff out. They were both that good. Uh, Jimmy was that good. Um, more recently, like I said, Shohei. Shohei, of course, has just been DHing and pitching, but I, if you put this guy in right field for a whole season, he's an all-star right fielder. He's, an all, he's a Hall of Fame candidate right fielder. He's all of that. He runs well. He throws well. He hits, hits with power. He runs the big rate. And then on top of that, he throws 90-some miles an hour. With, and he, then he creates on the fly. This guy... Uh, to learn a pitch right before the game and take it into the game and be very effective <laughs> with it, very adaptable. So I, I was pretty fortunate to have run into him. Mikey Trout, of course Mikey. Mikey's outstanding, but he can't pitch. You know, it's like um, <laughs> Shohei's just a little bit different, brother. He's different. I love that. Uh, Mikey Trout, he's really good, but he can't pitch. I went on to ask Joe Madden uh, if baseball works. Does it work in Portland? He said, if it works in Seattle, it works in Portland. Here's Joe Madden. Well, if it works in Seattle, it works in Portland, right? I mean, um, the Seattle Pilots, they go way back, and it's kind of uh, fuzzy to think about those days with the Pilots and their wonderful uniforms. And then the Mariners, I mean, when I was with the Angels, I was up there all the time, and I saw that franchise going. I'll tell you another thing. In the 80s, when I was running instructional leagues in Arizona for the Angels, the Mariners had among the best talent that there was at that they didn't win, but I'll tell you what, their scouts and their minor league developmental people did a great job. So it, of course it works. That ballpark up there is one of the best. Uh, I think it's T-Mobile now. Um, the fan base is rabbit. I mean, when you, they show up and it's kind of a, it's kind of a cult kind of a method, the way they, they follow their group, a very individualist, individualistic group of people and they protect their own. Protect their own cult, like Seattle Mariners fans, Joe Madden, Grab the full interview uh, wherever you get a podcast to this radio show. We also had, in hour number two, Alex Molden, former NFL defensive back, former Oregon Duck. He's got a kid now playing in the NFL. He's got another kid playing in high school that uh, has a pile of offers. Uh, we, we started talking about the Super Bowl. Alex Molden likes the Super Bowl. But we started the conversation by talking about uh, how you defend Patrick Mahomes. Here he is. The biggest, the, the biggest word is discipline. You cannot give him extra plays like the Baltimore Ravens did where you get, in a critical moment, you give him an extra 15 yards because it's a 15-yard penalty because you can't control your, your emotions or 
you tackle them around the head, or you do stupid things that can cost your team. So you have to be very smart. You got to be disciplined, and from time to time, you have to bring pressure. But it, it cannot be to get sacks. It has to be to get him and keep him in the pocket and just constrict him. Keep him in the pocket, constrict him. Yeah, if you remember the Super Bowl the last time the Niners and the Chiefs played, um, it frustrated me a little bit because the 49ers, I thought, gosh, they have such a great pass rush. They have a, you know, they have Bosa, and you know, they can come, they can get after you and make you uncomfortable, and you see it all season long. But with Mahomes, they really did kind of lay back a little bit, dropping more players into coverage, being more selective when they came after him. Be really curious to see um, why and how they get. Patrick Mahomes uh, off kilter and try to affect his timing and make him uncomfortable. Alex Molden uh, talked about quarterbacks like Mahomes. Uh, He said he liked defending guys like Dan Marino. Hated defending guys like Michael Vick. I loved the Dan Marinos of the world. I did not like having to deal with the Michael Vick who can be able to extend (laughs) plays, that can be able to maneuver and, you know, because – we're built as DBs, as defenses, we're built on timing. Like, okay, this, I only have to cover this world-class athlete for four, three to four seconds. It gets extremely hard when you have to cover that person for eight and nine seconds. It gets Because now, you know, because we're scripted in terms of, like, there are only so many routes they can run. But when you have a quarterback that can extend plays, now – the route tree, that's out the window. Now it's backyard football. So he makes them very difficult. And so, you know, when you do rush him, whether it's with four, five, or six, you have to, you have to, you can't create lanes because he'll hurt you. There you go. Talking about the, the way you defend a Patrick Mahomes. If you want the rest of that interview with Alex Molden, go to wherever you get the Bald Face Truth radio show podcast. Uh, Super Bowl tickets. I saw a headline today. Super Bowl tickets continue to plunge. And I thought, huh, because I looked on Monday and I looked on Tuesday and the Super Bowl tickets were like, you know, nine, ninety, uh, ninety five hundred, nine thousand, ninety two hundred. I mean, I was like, this is ridiculous. Well, as of today, the lowest get in ticket is currently at $7,700. And people are saying they've plunged since Monday down $2,200. I guess they are down. I don't know when something's $7,700 if we could say it's plunged. I don't know. I, I think we still have to say, damn, it's still really expensive to go to a Super Bowl game. Judah, $7,700, is it start, are you starting to think about it? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. But I wonder if there's some Niner fans out there uh, that that are thinking about it. But you're right. If it's 77, that's not plunging. I think, uh, you know, I get it. It's the prices are dropping, but I I still think, uh, you know, as you as you look at this Super Bowl, it's going to be probably one of the most, if not the most, expensive Super Bowl to ever attend. I'm looking at the seat map right now. You can get it right now. You can get into the upper deck at about 6,500. So these prices are dropping. Maybe by kickoff. You want to be in the lower level though? You're looking at ten to fifteen grand. (laughs) 
at Allegiant Stadium. I'll just That's have a, uh, Mrs. McCaffrey buy me a box. I think I think you're better. I think I think we're all better off watching this game on television. All right, next week we will go to Radio Row. We'll have some big guests on the show. Uh, we're efforting all of that, and I appreciate everybody who listens to the show. Have a great weekend, everybody.